Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Jelani Sims. Hello. It's wonderful to be here again. Hi, Jelani. Uh, it's been a while, so why don't you reintroduce yourself to the audience out there? Well, my name is Jelani Sims. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm currently a journalism teacher, uh, so I wrangle with yearbook and covering the school, taking pictures, all sorts of things. So that's my existence right now. Uh, and Jelani, you uh, chose the, the, the book this time, which is um, Toni Morrison's 1987 Beloved, her Pulitzer Prize winning novel uh, and probably her most famous work. Well, I think you kind of picked it. You kind of suggested it to me and I had a copy of it. I tossed a few things at you, but... Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, well, obviously, to anyone who's read this book, this is not a book that would probably be taught in high school. Um, it didn't exist when I was in high school. I, I, I graduated from high school in 1986. I, I, I read this book first when I was in graduate school. I think it was like around 1992 or 93. So it was only a, a few years old at the time. Um, what's your history with the book? Um, actually I wasn't born when it was first written. So, um, (laughs) I was born in, (laughs) I was born in 89. So, uh, my first, you make me so old. (laughs) I knew you would say something (laughs) like that, but here we are. I'll be actually, I'll be 34 on Monday, February 27th. But, um, anywho, uh, my first introduction to this book was actually the movie. I've never even seen the movie in entirety because I was a little kid when the movie came out. I think the movie came out in like 97 or something. Um, but I remember my mom watching it and say it was really weird. And then I ended up buying a copy of the book because a family member told me I really needed to read it. It was required reading. So I had the copy, hadn't read it yet until you gave me some suggestions. And I was like, well, (laughs) Beloved's in my collection and needs to be read. So here we are. (laughs) And uh, any first impressions on this first reading through? Um, I really loved it, actually. It's a strange book. There's a lot of things about the writing style that I maybe would have done differently. But when you finish reading it, you're kind of left with this feeling and thinking about a lot of different things in history um, and that have happened in America. So I really enjoyed it. And uh, I really resonated with the, um, the, the place of Sweet Home, this plantation, because I kind of live in that place. Um, I was, I've lived most of my life in the suburbs of Houston and Sugarland, Texas and Missouri City. And um, all the plantations that used to be here are very demarcated. I grew up in a neighborhood called Plantation Park. I live in a um, a uh, apartment complex now that's called Sink at Sienna Plantation. So, and several of the other plantations that um, are in the area are marked. Um, I the school I teach at sits on a place that was the Arcola Plantation. Um, which was ran by a man named Jonathan D. Waters, who was the kind of person who uh, shot a man in front of that person's wife over a money dispute. So you can only imagine how he entreated the enslaved persons on um, the plantation. And there's another plantation in the area called the uh, Palmer Plantation, and it's marked by this um, 500-year live oak where it was a place where enslaved persons were gathered together and told that they were free in 1865. So all these things are going on in Sugarland, and it's called Sugarland um, because of the imperial sugar factory that used to be there and the sugarcane fields that used to be there. And, and harvesting sugarcane was some of the harshest work you could ever do. There was a chemical aspect to it. 
Um, there was uh, just a hard, you have to work 24 hours in order to harvest it during harvest season. So this awful kind of plantation place um, that is spoken about in the book, Sweet Home, is exactly the type of place that used to be where I live now. So <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, you know, the past is, is never gone. It's always with us. Um, you, you mentioned when we were talking about this beforehand that I might want to put a disclaimer at the front of this. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously this is a book about uh, slavery and the aftermath of slavery. And uh, Morrison is not... Uh, afraid to be as graphic as she needs to be. And it's also a book about coming to terms with oneself uh, as an embodied person. There's a lot of sexuality in this book. There's a lot of stuff about motherhood and pregnancy. And obviously, there is a ton of stuff about being enslaved and then living with the trauma of having been enslaved. So, uh, you know, I don't know how um, graphic this conversation will get, but maybe this is more of a kind of a warning for anyone who hasn't read the book, you know, go in with your eyes open. Yes, definitely. We'll see uh, what parts of the the book you want to touch on. I've written some notes on things that stuck out to me throughout the whole thing. But in the first chapter... <laughs> There's already some interesting things mentioned. Yeah. I'll let you be the guide on what we talk about. It. <laughs> well, I, Johnny, I don't, I, everything's up for grabs. So talk about what you want to talk yeah. about. Um, I, I, I just want to say that when I read this book first, I didn't have a, a stronger grasp of the traditions of, um, of, of American literature. I, I was just fascinated by this book as a book. And it was, it was taught to me in a class on um, contemporary uh, American novel. And it was taught alongside Infinite Jest, for example, and, mm -hmm. and alongside uh, White Noise. And that, so that was what, where, where, where I was at reading this book. Um, reading it now, I'm just astonished by how how much um, commonality I see uh, with the works of Faulkner on the one hand and the works of Virginia Woolf on the other hand. And then I did some research and it turns out that um, Morrison wrote her thesis on Faulkner and on mm -hmm. Woolf. But she has um, been uh, asked about these influences often, and she denies any influence of Faulkner. So um, I will, I will, out of deference to her, to her, I will take her word for it, but I will say that she's certainly internalized a lot of, um, a lot of that stream of consciousness, that kind of crazy back and forth in timeness. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I came into this having read the book a long time ago and having seen the movie, I was confused as all get out reading it this time. I mean, it's a, it's a dense book. Well, um, the first thing I would say is how can you avoid being influenced by anybody that you've read? I mean, every word that we read influences us. Um, so I'm sure that even though she doesn't want to admit to it, that, you know, it's all in there and, a lot of literary works do have um, do have some of the same characteristics that this one does. Like for me, the uh, the roving viewpoint that was a big thing for me. Like we're reading in um, Seath's viewpoint, and then all of a sudden we're in um, we're in Denver's, or we're in Paul D. She kind of jumps into people's perceptions within the same paragraph. And I think that's one thing that made it kind of difficult to follow along with. And then also she seemed to switch between tense. It seemed to switch between past tense and also present tense. We have some kind of second person going on and then third person. So as you're reading, it's hard to keep track of it sometime and um, hold on to the narrative and what's actually going on. But um, overall, I was able to kind of hold on 
And if there was something I didn't understand, I would either go back and read it again or just keep moving and figure it all come into place when she got to a tense and a viewpoint that I could understand again. <laughs> well, this is a book that is in some ways a mystery. If, if, you, if you haven't seen the movie, if you haven't read it before, one of the things that Morrison is doing is she's introducing characters after emancipation uh, who are trying to make a life of it in, in, in Cincinnati, but they cannot escape uh, these bits and pieces of their past. Literally at the beginning, uh, Sethe, who is our point, I think our main point of view character, a mm -hmm. formerly enslaved woman uh, who uh, at some point escaped slavery, you're not told exactly how, is visited by a, a, a man, Paul D., who was at the same uh, plantation, enslaved at the same plantation, and it brings back a host of memories. Sethe and her uh, daughter, Denver, have been haunted by a ghost, we've been told, mm -hmm. and it's it's just sort of given as read. You're not supposed to even question it. You know, it's just like this is the world of the, of, of the story and everyone in the story believes it. And so what happens after is this patchwork explanation of this complicated and tragic history of mm -hmm. the various characters. And one of the reasons I found it so difficult to read is sometimes a point of plot seems to be missing. Like um, at one point in the book, uh, we learn after how, how after Sethe uh, was able to escape her plantation, she came to Cincinnati and her children were already living there with her mother-in-law. And I, I was, I read that passage and I was confused. And I looked back and I said, did we, did we ever explain how the kids got here? And then, of course, <laughs> Morrison explains that, you know, 100 pages later in the book. So yeah. you just have to trust her. She's going to get around to it eventually. And I think the setting is really interesting. Um, you've got Kentucky, one where the plantation that she lived on, Sweet Home, is located. And then you have the fact that they went to Cincinnati. And um, Ohio and Cincinnati, I learned from this book, called um, Until Justice Be Done by Kate Masser. And it's about what she calls the first civil rights movement from the American Revolution to the Civil War. She considers it a civil rights movement. And so Cincinnati was this place where a lot of uh, black people were escaping to and a lot of free slaves. And it caused a lot of racial tensions. You have the Cincinnati, the racial riots of 1829. And you have, so you have freed people coming to Cincinnati. You also have abolitionists um, who were pushing for the end of slavery, of course. You have uh, people who are in the politics of colonization. They wanted black people to move back to Africa. You also had black codes that were in Ohio at the time. And she mentions several things at the end of the book. Like she mentions the, if you give me one second, she mentions uh, the settlement fee on page 293, if you were a freed person going to Ohio, you had to pay a settlement fee so that if somehow you became a pauper or you had to beg on the state, there was money against you because you paid this fee. You had to register yourself. Um, she also mentions that um, none were obliged to serve blacks in Cincinnati and two, on page 293. So you had kind of these early Jim Crow laws as well that were in the black codes where black people could go, where they would be uh, served. And the main concern was, of course, controlling their movement. So um, when I was reading the book and realized that it was set in Kentucky and Cincinnati and I had all this previous history I had learned as well, it resonated a lot and helped me to understand um, also what was going on with the main characters in this book when they're in Ohio in the 1870s. No, it, uh, Morrison uh, has an a, a amazing command of history and an amazing command of place. Um, and 
an amazing sense of geography. There's a lot. Yeah. There, there, there's there are movements in this book. Um, Sethe's escape from uh, slavery keeps getting visited over and over again, and we get to see more and more of the of, of what happened to her in that that trip, uh, where. Yeah. She also gave birth to her youngest daughter, Denver, the only child of hers who is there at the beginning of the book uh, at this home, which is referred to as 124. Do we ever get the street name? I don't think we ever get the street name. It's just called 124. No, she, she just gives the name, the number of the home, 124. 124 was spiteful. 124 was loud. 124 was quiet. <laughs> Morrison is at once both a very... Um, a concrete writer. I feel like I, I get so much feeling from it, and, and so and she's so deep into the embodiment of her characters. And the other hand, there's places where it's extremely elliptical, um, mm. and that's appropriate because, in one way or another, uh, a lot of the characters in this book are trying to figure out how they deal with memories of enslavement. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul D deals with them basically by uh, denying them, by crunching them down. They, they say he's in a, what, a, tin, a tin box in his heart that he, doesn't, he, yeah. he has no access to. Um, Sethe, on the other hand, seems to be living in, in her memory of the past. And Denver seems at the beginning to be fascinated by the past. She uh, is the only one who likes the fact that there's a ghost there at the house at first. That's, it's her companion. Uh, the first thing that Paul D does when he arrives at the beginning of the story is chase the ghost out, and the second thing he does is uh, hit 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 the sack with um, with with Sethe. <laughs> and, and as you say, it's it's pretty. Uh, it, it's it's I don't wouldn't say it's graphic. I'd say it's like it's it's frank, and mm -hmm. it's again it's it's very beautiful, but it's also very tortured. Um, it's about two very broken people coming together. And as you say, we get both Sethe's uh, point of view and Paul D's point of view, and we keep bouncing back and forth between them. And then later we get, you know, Denver's point of view. We get everybody's point of view in this book. And it was, you kind of mentioned before that they all kind of accept this ghost. And I did think that that was interesting. This isn't the typical trope of a ghost story where, one person sees it and then everybody else kind of has to come along to believing it at some point. Everybody accepts the existence of this ghost. They know who it is. They understand Sethe's history, the fact that she has murdered her child and that this is the child of her ghost, which she, uh, this is the ghost of her child, which she calls beloved. And when Paul D arrives, he has some sort of, seems to have some sort of sixth sense as well because he can see it as an aura as he walks through the door and he can feel um, the emotions of that ghost. And he said he feels it as sadness. And they have a whole conversation about who this ghost is. Is it a grandmother? Is it baby Shugs? He's like, no, it's not baby Shugs because you said she died gently. This ghost is vengeful. This ghost is sad. And so there's really this acceptance of spirituality and of, of the other side that I think does come with black and African-American culture. We under, you know, there's always a trope that in horror movies, we're going to run because we're not going to question that sound that we heard, that energy. We know it's something from beyond and we're just going to accept it and live that way. And that tradition is very much in this book with how they approach the main problem of Beloved's existence. Now, you do mention um, the, what, what gets revealed, I don't know, around the halfway point of this book, which is that Sethe um, had killed her own daughter. And, and it, it happened after she'd run away from the, from the plantation. She'd lived in Cincinnati with her mother-in-law for some time and, with her, with, and she's been reunited with her uh, other, other children. And uh, the slave hunters come and and the and they they're, they come for her and she runs out to a shed she refuses to be taken back and refuses to have her children uh subjugated to the to to slavery and and kills 
her her older daughter um who doesn't really have a name per se up to that point um uh, but we're told all that Sethe could get uh on her tombstone was beloved she apparently had to trade sexual favors to get that carved onto a, a tombstone and she couldn't get dearly beloved written on it um so but but Obviously, if you've if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, it, it kind of it, that that fact, that central fact of 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 the infanticide, you know, kind of going in. But if you haven't read the book, it's something of a mystery up to that point. You know, something has happened. You know that this uh, daughter's ghost is angry for some reason. Um, but it, it, the, piecing it together is is part of the journey of the story. Yeah, and she and you do know that it's her daughter pretty early on. It says that, you know, again, 124 was spiteful, full of baby's venom. So you know what type of ghost it is at the end. And then a baby ghost, that's one thing that's also <laughs> very interesting in the story, I think. Um, and actually, I read in the introduction to my copy that the story is based off of uh, Margaret Garner. Did you look into any of her life at all? Yeah, I, I, I did. I did see that, that that this was based upon an actual event that happened, and I did see an interview with um, with Morrison where she talked about how the project of the book was her trying to get into the mind of what could possibly make a mother that desperate that she would kill her own child and and this is you know this is a very generous book i think that mm -hmm. morrison is exceedingly generous with all of her characters in this book there, there there are broken characters in this book there are bad people in this book morrison has a kind of a of, of magnanimity and she invites us to come along to uh to understand how someone could have done this. But if you want to talk about the historical event, please do. Um, well, what I deduced was from reading a little bit out on Wikipedia, honestly, but um, Margaret Garner, she was faced with the same situation. Um, she had escaped and slave catchers came for her. And this was after 1850 in the Fugitive Slave Law, which essentially turned all of the territory of the United States into a slave state. Um, a slave catcher and authorities could come to you anywhere, whether it be in a free state, whether it be in a slave state, and they could recapture you and pull you into slavery. Or if you had been free, then they could pull you into slavery and there you had no recourse. And so that's what she faced. And so she decided what many women did um, in that time was to kill their children rather than have them suffer through slavery. And her story really does read um, like a Greek tragedy because she ends up being taken back into a slave state again after being arrested. She's forced to return to Kentucky. And then her owner sold her, uh, well, not sold her, but sent her to his brother in Arkansas. They were on the way there on the river and the boat sank and she either jumped off and let her child drown or something happened. Um, but her, a second of her children drowned and she apparently tried to drown herself and she apparently showed great ecstatic joy at the fact that this other child was now being drowned because she wouldn't have to go back to this plantation as well. And so it was just a very dark tragic story and that's kind of how I felt after reading the book as well and knowing the source material that I was kind of just standing and looking over into this dark abyss of everything that has happened after the the, the baby's ghost gets uh chased out of the house this young woman appears who calls herself right. beloved she seems to be magical uh, she seems to have done nothing done no work in her life she seems brand new but she's also the age that Sethe's daughter would have been if she had lived and very quickly i think all the characters in the in the story start to understand that she is this embodiment of uh of of the ghost the baby um in physical form but as the book goes along i feel like that explanation becomes complicated she she be she behaves in in ways that are 
that seem to acknowledge the fact that she know she knows things about Sethe that only her child would know. She, you know, she, she her breath smells of milk. She has, uh, uh, it seems like these traces of wounds on her neck where the baby was killed. But she also seems like the embodiment of of, of a whole host of things, including there's a a, a long uh, stream of consciousness. Uh, sort of soliloquy she gives uh, towards the end of the book where the, each uh, of the three women in the book in turn get to have a soliloquizing chapter and Beloved's it seems to be having full of memories of Africans on the Middle Passage on slave ships and somehow she's the embodiment of that as well. Yeah, and it seems like that that passage was very strange. There were no periods it was kind of just spaces in between these pieces of thoughts or things that might still be sentences, but we're in a whole other world. And to me, I interpreted that like that must have been when she was in this underworld place or when she was dead before she came back. And I was really amazed at kind of what you mentioned, how quickly they all accept Beloved and know who she is. They um and because it's like a level 10 haunting, if you will. You've got a physical <laughs> ghost that can touch, that knows things about you, that's just coming up out of the water, and you're okay with it. You're going to have this live in the house with you. And so by the end of the book, when she's fully revealed, she's kind of revealed as this hungry ghost who her presence is starting to suck on Sethe and, and suck on Denver and kind of take their energy away and turns into this really horrible wraith that they allowed to be in the house the whole time. So I was really fascinated by their behavior. Well, well, you know, Denver at first seems uh, sort of delighted because she feels like she's got her, her playmate back, but um, yeah. she, she starts to see how uh, beloved is taking over her mother's life it's 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 an odd move because in normal horror stories, what makes ghosts frightening is they aren't corporeal. They seem that they, they can do things that 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 flesh and blood can't, and the rules don't seem to apply to them. And so you're trying to figure out uh, if you're dealing with a ghost in a regular ghost story, what exactly their their powers are and and, and what what threat they pose. In this case, we have the sort of re-embodiment of, of a spirit into a physical form. And that's almost more horrifying in a, in a way. Yes, most certainly. Because even though that ghost is, is the ghost that you can't see, it can kind of play on the same plane as us. It can move objects around. Uh, but when you're human again, it's just, there's no limit to what you can do. Now you're completely, totally back in this space with us and you can take complete control. So yes, it's definitely more terrifying. And the strength of that spirit to be able to do that. <laughs> well, the control that a beloved uh, exerts is the control of her mother's guilt and that the, 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 the feeling that her mother has that she has to somehow make it up to uh, to beloved, but it it will never be enough. Um, but it, but you know, there's there's also points in the book where some of the characters start to think, well, perhaps she's uh, a young woman who's run away from captivity somewhere. This is is one of those books that happily plays with our um, with with the ambiguous nature of of, of the, the situation. So um, if if you if you don't like that, if you if you like your stories to be straightforward, uh, this isn't that. Well, who wants a straightforward ghost story? <laughs> Late in the book, when part part of what is the resolution of this of this un- intolerable situation, where mm-hmm. uh, the this embodied spirit or whomever beloved is has taken over 124 the uh, mother Sethe has lost her job and is wasting away the daughter is trying to find help and um, Paul D who was there uh, sort of as this new uh, bloom of romance for Sethe at the beginning has 
left in horror after learning that uh, Sethe had killed her her child. Uh, the resolution comes in the form of the community of uh, African Americans in Cincinnati. Uh, first of all, giving food and aid to the family, but then coming on uh, mass and 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 singing. And it's part, there. There's a, a a a an odd parallelism, which was when Sethe was being pursued by the slave hunters. Um, she never quite fit in with the community in in Cincinnati. Uh, she kind of set herself apart in some ways she, from from that community, and the and she and the people there knew that these slave hunters were coming for her, but didn't help. And so, in an inversion, this time they're coming to help. Um, and also, <laughs> this uh, local um, abolitionist, he's presented as sort of like this hopeless white liberal who doesn't quite get it who also seems to have a uh, uh you know one of those black jockey statues in his house yes the jim crow art you know when i was growing up and i had a i had a um i had a paper route and i will always remember that one of the houses on that route had had a little black jockey statue and i didn't know what it was when i was that age but i i really did not like it it, I, it it seemed extremely malevolent to me. Well, the energies behind those types of that type of art, if you will, or creation is malevolent. It was to um, distort the image of black people, make them something less than human. The one that uh, Toni Morrison uh, depicts for us is a black boy saying at your service. So to reinforce those concepts that black people were to serve whoever, whatever was deemed above them and everything's above you and you're a member of the slave class, essentially. So, um, the yes, it is very malevolent energy behind those type of objects. And it's interesting that not only people who were, quote-unquote, very against black people had them, but also people who appeared to be allies also trafficked in some of the same beliefs and still had those beliefs even though they appear to be on the side of black people. That contingency of whether or not uh, someone was going to be a friend or a, an enemy is, is something that I think comes up several times in the book. Uh, there's, a, mm. there's a point, the narrative voice, I think it's, it's in um, Sathe's head at that point, is, is, or maybe it's Paul D., is... is reflecting on how the reality of being enslaved was you at any moment, your situation could change depending on the whim of mm -hmm. the slave owner. You had no volition over your life and all the connections you try to make are, are, are immediately, you know, could, could be immediately be severed. And that's what makes it so, poignant that you know Sethe tried to have tried to be married to uh to the the Halle who's yeah. um gone by the beginning of this story though but he's the husband that by which her baby Suggs is her mother-in-law um she's Sethe's tries really hard to like establish i'm going to have an actual marriage she's going to make herself an actual uh wedding dress and and the and the good i'm putting up quotation marks here that, that no one can see but i'm telling you quotation marks here please do not do not misunderstand me when i say the good slave owner the 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 the, the benevolent uh gardener gardener mrs gardener he says, "Oh, that's that's so cute. That's so sweet. Here, let me give you some earrings." There is there is one um, white character in this book who I think uh, is an unabashedly good character. That that's Amy, the woman, uh, the the Irish woman that that uh, Sethe meets and who helps deliver Denver. Yes, Amy is a very benevolent spirit, and when you think about the fact that she's Irish, Irish people should be able to understand a lot about 
um, what uh, African peoples went through because they also came on boats as indentured servants and um, with barely any money in their pocket and they faced um, and uh, they faced undesirable job positions when they came here. So she's definitely a person who should have been able to understand where they're coming from. And she herself was out there in the woods with who knows where to go. Um, so definitely she was the main one. And she meets, she meets Sethe as on, on the same level. They, they, she, mm-hmm. There's no pretense. You know, she hears, she realizes that Sethe has um, escaped slavery. She doesn't care. She's not. She's not going to comment on it one way or another. You know, she's she's going to talk. All all that Amy is interested in is going to Boston to get some velvet, uh, and 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 in a, in a strange way, that's exactly what Sethe needs at that moment is someone who is not going to treat her like in anything other than just another traveler on the road, and. Um, so that's a that's a, I think it's a, a a lovely sequence. Is there is there I, I, as we wind down here? You mentioned you had some things that you 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 underlined. Are there any passages you'd like to go over? Well, one person we never talked about was the school teacher, and I wanted to go back to him for a second um, because you mentioned kind of the vicissitudes that people went through if they were enslaved, if your owner died, if you had a quote good slave owner, and then they died. And then somebody like school teacher came in who was much more harsh with you and um, treated you terribly. That was when all the horrible things happened at Sweet Home. And I thought that he was a very interesting character as well. The fact that it was school teacher and um, that um, and it seemed like Morrison was kind of channeling this skepticism of, I guess, black people being taught by white people. That could be one thing. Um, perhaps a school teacher is somebody that you think is innocuous or is that's not harmful or that wouldn't do things like that. But anybody um, could have been an enslaver back in the day. You had women doing it. You had men doing it. Perhaps you had someone with a soft sensibility doing it, much like school teacher had. And then you had the more the traditional, the, the overseers who are very harsh and horrible. So I think that um, there's also this play in the book of having kind of this veneer, this unassuming veneer over the most sinister of things. Mm-hmm. And then another thing I thought was interesting in the book was definitely in the first chapter, um, what Paul D and the other Pauls and the other men were doing while they were waiting on Seth to make a decision about who she wanted to be with. Um, I thought that was very interesting to have in the first chapter. I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think Morrison does a, 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 an amazing job of presenting what choices you have when you have no choice. You know, it's sort of like how, how these people try to arrange their relationships. If you are being treated by the slavers as um basically livestock and 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 the only relationships you're allowed to have are ones that they see as beneficial that they will breed more slaves it becomes extremely difficult to have um to have regular human relationships i i know that there there was an interview she said where in which people were like saying well you know are we supposed to really see these these characters as admirable and she basically says i don't have to explain these characters to you i'm not that's not my job um and that's you know that's the way i feel about that i guess and i mean that's human nature at the end how can all of us stand there in the circle and lob the stone he who has not cast who who he was (laughs) excuse me he who has not uh, sin cast the first stone you know that whole thing there so to ask are these characters admirable no they're human they they do all sorts of things things that you question things that you can praise and things that you would look in horror upon you usually like to read a passage from the book and there was one passage that really stuck out to me um, it's on page 83 and it says um, why was there nothing it refused no misery no regret 
no hateful picture too rotten to accept like a greedy child it snatched up everything just once could it say no thank you i just ate and can't hold another bite i am full goddamn it of two boys with mossy teeth um Wow. One sucking on my breast and the other holding me down. Their book reading teacher watching and writing it up. I'm still full of that. Um, God damn it. I can't back and I, I can't go back and add more. And my husband to it watching above me in the loft hiding close by the one place he thought no one would look for him looking down on what I couldn't look at at all and not stopping them looking and letting it happen. But my greedy brain says, oh, thanks, I'd love more, so I add more. And no sooner than I do, there is no stopping. There's also my husband squatting by the churn, smearing butter, as well as its clabber all over his face because the milk they took is on his mind. And as far as he is concerned, the world is, may as well know it. And if he was broken then, then he is also and certainly dead now. And if Paul D. saw him and could not save or comfort him because the iron bit was in his mouth, then there is still more that Paul D. could tell me, and my brain would go right ahead and take it and never say, no, thank you. I don't want to know or have to remember that. I have other things to do. Worry, for example, about tomorrow, about Denver, about Beloved, about age and sickness not to speak of love. And that part really stuck out to me. Of course, that is set they outlining a lot of the horrific things that happened to her and her family. Um, but when I read that, um, I really resonated with my experience of reading history, especially as a black person. I, I don't want to read any more of this. How much more can I take? Um, finding all these anecdotes about um, what enslaved people went through um, and what the country had, had done to us as a class of people, but yet I kept taking in more, you know. Yet another um, video of police brutality being released. Should I watch this? I don't have any more room to take this in, but yet I want to see it, or yet the public is going to see it and mull over it when we know the injustice of it already. We know it's horrific already, and yet we still seem to be um, funneling, fueling in all this violence. Reading this book now, especially in the current political uh, climate, I feel grateful that I have access to this work. Of course, right now, there's a lot of people out there trying really hard to suppress black voices, to suppress all kinds of voices in this country. Uh, and there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of governors of certain states who are trying to remove these things from, uh, from, from, from libraries. Thank God I can at least read this. And I, and I do think it's something that people um, should, should read. And, and as you say, it, it is, there is an aspect of this that is, feels kind of masochistic. Um, as, a, as a white reader, of course, it's, I have to, take in as best I can a story that's not mine. I think it's sort of beside the point. All these, uh, a lot of the, the people who, who are against um, this kind of literature uh, say, well, shouldn't we be moving on as a country? Why, why should people be made to feel ashamed of themselves? I feel like if, if you feel ashamed when you read this book, then that's on you, but you need to do the, you need to have the decency to listen to another person's story. But I, I think that the real change will come once people read a story like this and realize that it is your story, too. It's a human story. Um, it's it, enslavement in America in the period we're talking about was racialized. But um, human enslavement has happened since humans have been a thing. We've always exploited each other. You had people in ancient Rome. Um, in ancient Greece, trading people for casks of wine and on down through history. And slavery still exists in the world. In 2016, there were 40 million slaves, people currently enslaved at the time um, in every country around the United States, I mean, around the world and including the United States. You know, I'm daily reading stories about um, people from Central America who come here and they think they're 
uh, going to be getting legitimate work, but they end up uh, picking fruit for free on a, in the Alabama plantation, or they end up um, they end up uh, on a cannabis farm somewhere in Oregon, and they can't leave, and they have to work long hours. And those are things that are happening now. Um, and as we move into a more industrialized age, we're going to have to reckon with all the things we're doing that are exploiting others. You know, to have that cell phone, someone had to dig that lithium out of a mine, and um, they face dangerous conditions and how much are they being paid? And it's probably a child. Um, so I think that it pays to come away from a book like this, understanding that slavery is actually not something that's locked in the past, but it's something that's going on in the present and it's touching all of us. That, that's, that's a great point, Jelani. And the other, the other point that I think you made that I, I really take to heart is that this is uh, the story of America, you know, the, the, for for people who like to say, when people like to say, oh, why don't why don't we focus on the things that are you know bring us together as a country? What they're really saying is like, let's focus on the things that make me happy about this country. Let's let's focus on the story that I relate to. But slavery is the story of this country. It was how this country was founded. And it was how this country was made. And we today uh, are living in wealth and buildings and territories and laws that were uh, built on, on the back of, of enslaved people. And, and so that, that is our story. And, and, it, and, and I feel like that's the answer to give to people who say, well, why aren't we trying to unify? Uh, why aren't we doing things that unify? Well, unify away, but unify about what actually happened. And the story and what actually happened is coming out now more than ever before. There's so many different books coming out. Um, scholars are really digging into those archives and um, through DNA, finding out the histories of people, their, um, um, their, the stories of their family trees going back generations. And so that's why you see so many people trying to shut it down, because we actually are moving through an age of enlightenment. And um, I think it's so important for people to continue to be enlightened, to continue to think, to continue to dig into these stories, because the past is truly so important. It's very important to me. Um, my third great grandfather was an enslaved person of Sam Houston, um, the hero of San Jacinto. And that's how um, my father's line ended up in the in Texas is because of Joshua Houston coming here. Uh, in 1840. And so I visited his grave site. Um, I learned more and more about him every day and more about the 19th century, which I'm a huge fan of, a huge student of actually every day. Um, and these things are important. Uh, people, um, and he died in 1902 and he's important to me. So, you know, you hear a lot about reparations or whether, you know, what's happening now is relevant to what's happening then people know of their family members they know of their history and they care about people who died back in the 1800s and who died back in 1902 uh, like my grandfather did so those stories are so important i'm very grateful for this opportunity to, to reread this book you know i i read it like i said back in grad school and it's been sort of sitting on my shelf too for a long time and it's a it is a a beautiful work uh it, you know we we've, we've kind of i think we've um focused on some of the, the the tragic and uncomfortable elements of the book but it's also a book about uh you know it's a it's 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 a beautiful description of a lot of universal um aspects of, of being alive and having and, and like i said of having a body but actually my favorite quote uh it was towards the end when um paul d uh wants to go back to to Sethe and uh he re he recalls what his friend at the uh plantation said about this woman they call 30 mile woman he, there was a, a slave at a plantation 30 miles away that this guy would go to see uh, he'd have to walk there at, at night um and he said his friend said she is a friend of my mind she gather me man the places i am she gather them 
and give them back to me all in the right order. It's good, you know, when you got a woman who is a friend of your mind. And uh, so it's also a book about people making uh, that kind of deep uh, <laughs> mental connection. And uh, that, that I, th I think it's a, a, a beautiful, the book ends um, solemnly, but not without hope. And that's a wonderful way that she described that actually a friend of the mind, because when you think about that person you love, it does make your head feel good. It does make your whole body um, feel nice. And so you have this person that is a joy to dwell on and you know that they love you back. And this book is filled with moments of love, filled with moments of joy, partying. You see scenes of um, um, of uh, spirituality in the woods. Baby Shugs would have church services out in the clearing and, that was a very joyful moment um, in the book where they were asked to laugh. They were asked to cry. And I think they were asked to do a third thing. I don't remember what the third thing that they were asked to do, but they did these actions in succession that kind of just, um, like you said, encompass the whole meaning of what it means to be human and to feel. And you also have the party that they had with the blackberries um, around the, uh, around the house. And they had all this food, more food than anyone could eat. And so those are definitely um, the type of practices and the type of ceremonies that have sustained um, the African-American community uh, specifically through so much heartache and through the harshness of, of enslavement and of being free. I really enjoyed Beloved for three reasons. The first is that it's historical. Almost all of the reading I do is um, historical nonfiction books. So um, I really enjoyed the setting of Beloved. Also, the second reason is that it takes place in the 19th century. And I absolutely love everything 1800s. That's something that I also almost exclusively read and think about. And the third reason is that it has a horror element element with a ghost and those types of stories have been my favorite since I was a child and I would always watch mostly horror movies so this book fits all of those bills and I really enjoyed the writing voice and the characters um, that Morrison used to explore these worlds that I visit often thanks again to my co-host Jelani Stevens Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com, or you can join in the discussion on either the Facebook page or the Incomparable membership Slack. Right, right. So I went to preferences. I see general, oh, audio, okay. Hello? There, oh my God, that's so much. You sound now something like you're like a FM uh, DJ. It sounds a lot better. A lot better, yeah, that's great. It sounds horrible on my end. 